the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and we're glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we're going to talk with an advertiser, David Martin. He's the co-owner of Happy Valley Arts Academy. He's the co-owner, along with Sydney, Troy, Tiffany, and Charlie. They are the Martins. We'll tell you about the Academy, as well as online classes that they're currently offering for kids who, and adults, for that matter, who need something constructive to do. We'll also talk with Dr. Doug Estes. He's the author of Braving the Future, Christian Faith and a World of Limitless Tech. He's an associate professor of New Testament and practical theology at South University. He's the editor of Didacticus. It's a journal of theological education. He's a regular science contributor at Christianity Today. He's written or edited about eight books, uh, as well as numerous essays, articles, and reviews for both popular and scholarly publications. We'll talk with him about his latest book, simply titled Braving the Future. So that's coming up all in the first Hour. But first, a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, President Trump uh, signed an executive order temporarily suspending immigration into the U.S. with a coronavirus pandemic. He announced late Monday that he will sign this order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States in what appeared to be a drastic escalation of his efforts to fight the coronavirus pandemic and boost the economy. In light of the attack from the invisible enemy, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the U.S., the president tweeted. The declaration came hours after U.S. equity markets plunged, oil prices turning negative for the first time in history. Also on Monday, three states, Georgia, Tennessee, and South Carolina, revealed plans to begin reopening some businesses. We'll talk more in detail about that. Also, Massachusetts is seen as a new coronavirus hotspot that shifted away from New York to Massachusetts. Well, the governors of Georgia, Tennessee and South Carolina on Monday afternoon announced new plans to bring new uh, their states, rather their economic status closer to full force amid signs of coronavirus outbreak slowing. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said certain businesses, including gyms and hair salons, can reopen beginning this Friday. Meanwhile, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee confirmed his state's stay at home order previously extended to April the 30th will end that day. And South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster said business previously deemed unessential department stores, flea markets, florists, bookstores, and music shops could reopen their doors. Other coronavirus developments, Michigan, a doctor there is leading the nation's largest antibody test. That's expected um, to be the first uh, and have its results in about a month. Chile is uh, going to debut the world's first immunity passports for coronavirus which is an interesting concept that may become a part of our new normal. Well, bank officials reportedly have warned that some $450 billion, the package to replenish the earlier small business emergency fund, will likely have a burn rate of $50 billion per day and run out of money in just a few days. This is Congress's $300 billion package for small businesses. They say it's not enough and may only last days. 
Well, banks have been warning customers that are qualified for the loan that not every business will receive one. Banking representatives told the website that for the package to um, have any significant effect on demand, it would have to be about $1 trillion. Richard Hunt, the president of the Consumer Bankers Association, said that the new funds would be gone at, at most in 72 hours, which gives you some understanding as to why governors are looking for ways to at least begin to reopen their economies. Negotiators from the House, Senate, and White House finalized an accord on the so-called Phase 3.5 response to the coronavirus pandemic and hope to have an agreement uh, late uh, today or Tuesday signed by the president, which offers grants to small businesses struggling to make payroll. Other developments with oil below zero, the president is going to create a strategic petroleum reserve by historically uh, taking advantage of this historic buying opportunity. Oil prices are negative, but prices at the pump won't follow, so don't expect to see that. New York County residents have sued the World Health Organization over the coronavirus response. And Kim Jong-un is, uh, un rather, is recovering after cardiovascular procedure, according to South Korean media, and he is not doing well. From uh, one story, the president says he's going to suspend immigration, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, announcing plans to reopen. And there's a media report that the Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, is gravely ill. Shake Shack is returning $10 million to Paycheck Protection Program. The organization explained that some smaller businesses need it more. Meanwhile, from Marco Rubio on the Democrat uh, delay in funding, which is now uh, a memory, uh, they have saved approximately 30 million jobs. 74% of loans have been for small businesses with monthly payrolls of $60,000 or less. To date, that's been by far the most effective part of the CARES Act. And for five days, it has been paused while Democrat leaders use it as leverage. They were looking for funding for hospitals. There's now an agree- agreement reached and it is moving forward. Uh, San Francisco Chronicle, nearly half of hospitals COVID-19 patients are obese, they report. The United States has more obese people, about 40 percent of the overall population than any other major nation. And obesity has been linked to chronic preventable illness such as heart disease, stroke and type 2 diabetes. Any of those conditions can lead to a more severe outcome of COVID-19. Well, New York's Reclaim Pride Coalition doesn't recognize their own bigotry. The group demonstrates outside Samaritan's Purse Field Hospital. Meanwhile, as New York um, uh, Governor Mar- or Andrew Cuomo is cracking down on New York citizens, Carl Mar- Markowitz notes that he is yet to get his brother's uh, brother under control. From the story, last week, Chris Cuomo announced that his wife, Christina, had al- also tested positive for the virus. Who knows how that happened? But it's uh, discovering it's disconcerting rather enough that Chris has blatantly not been quarantining. A few days before the announcement about his wife, Chris was seen in East Hampton, a 30 minute drive from his home, visiting a property of his that is under construction. He had a verbal altercation with a bicyclist who correctly asked what he was doing outside. Third CNN personality has now tested positive for the virus as well. Mayor de Blasio says he's shocked by released criminals committing crimes. I think it's unconscionable just as a human level that folks were shown mercy. And this is what some of them have done, the mayor said during his morning briefing on Monday, which came on the heels of uh, a post reporting online, uh, rather outlining the issue. Nikki Haley says de Blasio is surprised that prisoners released due to coronavirus went into commit went on to commit crimes. If they don't have a support system, a job or a way to feed themselves, They will feel like there is no choice. You have to prepare them for life beyond the fence. What job was there going to be available to them? Meanwhile, from reporter Bill Milligan, under California's new zero cash bail rules, 
Child abusers are now eligible for immediate release. San Bernardino County Sheriff says that he had to release a felony child abuse suspect with um, priors for domestic violence and child abuse immediately after arrest. It did not go down well with law enforcement. And a Harvard professor is calling for a ban on homeschooling. What an interesting time he chose to do just that, or rather she chose. Elizabeth Bartholet says, from the beginning of compulsory education in this country, we have thought of the government as having some right to educate children so that they become active, productive participants in the larger society. But it's also important that children grow up exposed to community values, social values, democratic values, ideas about non-discrimination and tolerance of other people's viewpoints. Dr. Albert Moeller, in response, says the biggest obstacle to a progressivist direction for the public schools and beyond for America's youth is the fact that American parents do have significant rights in deciding where their children are going to be educated and how their children are going to be educated. But if nothing else, American parents need to know what the agenda is, and it is important. Before turning to the law review article, to review that uh, article appeared in the Harvard Magazine, as if uh, this should make just common sense to readers of that magazine. Again, from Albert Moeller. Restaurants are struggling to hire as unemployment pays more than their salary. We talked about this yesterday, the exact problem Republicans expressed when Democrats insisted on paying people more than they make working. And there are companies desperately trying to hire. A look at why this is so difficult to open a restaurant without risking high infection. The New York Times uh, wrote extensively on the subject. And there's a new academic study that says left-leaning are much more likely to discriminate, uh, discriminate against right-leaning than vice versa. It's present on both uh, ideological uh, views, but interestingly, heavier on one than the other. And on this day in history, 1926, Britain's Queen Elizabeth II is born in Mayfair, London. Today is her 94th birthday, I believe. On this day in history, 1789, John Adams is sworn in as the first vice president of the United States. 1975, with communist forces closing in, South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu, he resigns after nearly 10 years in office and flees the country. 1976, clinical trials on the swine flu vaccine begin in Washington, D.C. 1998, on this day in history, astronomers rather announce in Washington that they have discovered possible signs of a new family of planets orbiting a star 220 light years away. The clearest evidence to date of worlds forming beyond our solar system. Apparently God is still creating. 2014, more than 30,000 people defiantly run the Boston Marathon after the deadliest terror bombing a year earlier. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with David Martin. He's the co-owner, along with his family, of Happy Valley Arts Academy. It's a music school, and they're currently offering online classes. We'll tell you all about it when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I know we're all familiar with the phrase stir-crazy, cabin fever. People are frazzled by weeks of lockdown. The kids are at home. You want to keep them occupied, entertained, supplement their education. Well, I want to let you know about an opportunity that's uh, available to you, and we're going to be talking with David Martin here in just a moment. He is the co-owner, along with Sydney, Troy, Tiffany, and Charlie. They're the Martins of Happy Valley Arts Academy. It's a music school. 
Uh, and they're also advertisers with one of our sister stations of Salem uh, Communications. Now, we know that small businesses are really impacted directly by uh, COVID-19 and the lockdown that we're under. So we want to encourage them and we want to let you know about the services they provide so that maybe we can benefit one another. You can take advantage of the, uh, uh, the services they provide and they can benefit uh, and their business can continue to thrive and prosper. Well, David Martin, you are one of the co-owners of Happy Valley Arts Academy. I am delighted to have you with us today. Welcome. Thanks, Georgine. I appreciate you having me on. Well, let's begin by just talking about Happy Valley Arts Academy. And I took music lessons when I was a kid, and Mrs. Roberts came to my home once a week, and I sat down at the, the piano at my house, and we did piano lessons. Talk about 21st Century Happy Valley Arts Academy and how this works. Well, I'll tell you, it has been quite a roller coaster these last few weeks um, with, you know, everything changing over to online lessons, um, because that's really been the, the, that's been the adjustment. Uh, we've mm-hmm. had to really transition from being in person, you know, like you said, your teacher coming to you, uh, in, you know, in your house and doing an in-person lesson to going from that to doing all virtual lessons. And, and thankfully, you know, we have the technology now, you know, I mean, they'd say 10, 15 years ago, maybe this wouldn't have been an option, but yeah. but we do have it. And so it's really been fortunate because um, a lot of these, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of these students, they, they've worked so hard at their instrument. And, um, you know, many of them have been working for multiple years, you know, at developing their skill. And so it just would have been a shame for us to have to shut everything down and um, and wait this thing out since we don't know how long that will be. But, uh, but, yeah, so online lessons at our academy are continuing, and it's really been a, a neat thing to see the teachers kind of rallying and, and figuring this thing out. The, the office staff has done a great job in, in helping people kind of learn how to, you know, click the right links and, you know, enter in the passwords and all that kind of stuff so that they can stay connected with their teachers and so music education can continue. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about piano, guitar, drums, singing, and violin. And um, my understanding is during this lockdown period, if you will, you're offering free live online music lessons. Tell us about that. Well, it all started out with uh, just kind of this idea of how can we engage the community more? Um, because, you know, when, when this all first started, there was a lot, you know, Georgia, you know, there's a lot of fear, uh, a lot of panic, I think, uh, that was going around. And we wanted to do something that would kind of bring some joy into, you know, in, into the community and something positive, you know, some positive news for a change. And so we, uh, you know, we started producing some content on our Facebook page, uh, which is Happy Valley Arts Academy on Facebook. Um, we started having our teachers do showcases and, uh, you know, teaching some, doing some demonstrations on the instruments, you know, whether it's piano or guitar or drums. And that started working really well. Um, and then we thought, well, what if we actually put together just full-blown classes? Uh, and, uh, and so people can register for them and like an intro class to whatever instrument uh, they're interested in. And so uh, we, started, um, we started talking about it. And, you know, I, I talked to the teachers about it, like, what, you know, is this something you guys would be open to? And, um, and the teachers were on board. And so we, we just launched this thing about, uh, gosh, it's only been about two and a half weeks. seems like, you know, it's been a while. But it's, uh, w- when we started this thing off, we, um, uh, we just let everybody know in the community, hey, we're, we're now offering free intro group virtual music classes. <laughs> and uh, it has been an absolute 
hit. Uh, we've had so many, I, hundreds of people have, uh, I couldn't even tell you the exact number because every day we get, we get a bunch more, but uh, hundreds of people have signed up for this and the response has just been wonderful. Uh, it's been a great program too for our teachers because they've also been impacted by this uh, thing as well, you know, uh, getting their jobs cut back and their gigs cut back. So this is a way yeah. that we can continue to pay our teachers um, and give them some work. So it's just all around, it's been a really, really good thing. Oh, that's just such a generous um, gift to our community because people are looking for constructive and positive things to do. And I should mention that Happy Valley Arts Academy, it's a family-oriented music school. They're located in the heart of Happy Valley. It's on the east side of Portland. They teach music lessons to all ages and all levels. And normally you could stop by seven days a week for a tour on Southeast uh, Sunnyside Road. But for now, they're offering free online, live online music lessons, which is just an incredible thing. You know, a lot of schools have really reduced or eliminated their music programs altogether. So this is a great alternative or a way to enhance what kids are getting in school if they're fortunate to uh, enough to have that, uh, to make that available. Again, the website is happyvalleyartsacademy.com happyvalleyartsacademy.com, and there's all kinds of information there. You can sign up and, and details. Let me just ask you, how is your family faring during this season when I assume everybody's at home for the most part uh, weathering this uh, temporary storm? Well, I'll tell you, we're getting antsy. <laughs> I've got to be honest <laughs> with you. We're getting antsy. We're ready to, you know, especially with the weather getting nicer, we want to get out yes. there and do some biking and stuff. But, you know, we've, we've been holding, holding strong and um, – um, but I'll tell you, it's it's been a really a big joy for us to continue this thing. I, I've actually been really busy uh, the last few weeks, just kind of coordinating all this stuff. Uh, and so, um, but uh, but no, I appreciate you asking that because it's it, it's something that we all are dealing with. You know, kind of just being here uh, cooped up at home <laughs> until <laughs> this thing we ride this thing out. Well, and again, I want to encourage our listeners, if you've ever thought about music lessons, this is a great way to get sort of an introduction with a free live online music lessons at Happy Valley um, Arts Academy. And again, the website is just that, happyvalleyartsacademy.com. And they're generously making these free online music classes available for uh, anyone interested. And if you'd like to sign up, you can go to the website and all the the, uh, details um, are there. Now, I wanted to encourage our listeners um, to Take advantage of the services that you provide. I know once, and we say this by faith, perhaps once this uh, um, pandemic is lifted and we're able to uh, communicate and associate with one another face to face again, this is a great resource in our community in general, aside from what you're doing now. And I want to encourage them to help um, you to maintain the service that you provide and to get some great training uh, that's available uh, there. And also just want to encourage you to continue to provide the service that our community has enjoyed um, because of the work that you do and do so well. So hang in there. We support you. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And I also want to encourage uh, just everybody listening to that. You know, I just think it's so important that we don't let this this virus or this pandemic keep us from creating and sharing music together. One of the things I've enjoyed online is people doing just that, just taking to their Facebook page or whatever account, social media account they have, and sharing music, sharing art, things of beauty, things that are encouraging. And so um, to develop those uh, those talents, you never know when they might come in handy. And I know Happy Valley Arts Academy has been equipping families, uh, young and old, of all levels, um, uh, to do just that. Hey, thank you so much, uh, David Martin, you and your family at Happy Valley Arts Academy.
Thank you so much, Georgine. I really appreciate the time. Appreciate it very much. Okay, folks, once again, that website is happyvalleyartsacademy.com. What a generous offer from this uh, uh, this uh, business in our community. And we want to encourage and support one another, so I hope you'll take advantage of the opportunity for this very thing. Also want to remind you that portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Up next, we're going to share an interview with Doug Estes. Dr. Estes is the author of Braving the Future Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. He is an associate professor of New Testament and practical theology at uh, South University in uh, Nottingham. He's also the editor of the Didacticos Journal of Theological Education and a regular science contributor at Christianity Today. He has uh, written or edited eight books, as well as numerous essays, articles, and reviews for both popular and scholarly publications. But he'll join us to talk about Braving the Future, Christian faith in a world of limitless text. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest points out that technology is changing around us at a blistering pace. We're entering an era in which human bodies merge with devices, corporations know everything about us, and artificial intelligence develops humans and even godlike potential. Douglas Estes equips Christians to thoughtfully and prayerfully prepare for a future of rapidly changing technology. In his latest book, Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Technology. Tech is coming so fast now that we can only imagine what it will bring. Well, in the book, he samples eight key technologies that will shape our future. He draws on scripture, Christian tradition, and a deep appreciation for science. He offers believers a grounded response to these rapid changes, and he also responds to transhumanism, the new philosophy emerging from Silicon Valley that promotes radical life extension through technology. With thoughtful questions and suggestions, he helps readers choose trust in God over fearful retreat and following Jesus over uncritical engagement with technology. Douglas Estes is Associate Professor of New Testament and Practical Theology and Director of the um, MDiv program at South University, Columbia. He has pastored several churches and is the author of many books focusing on the intersection of text, church, and world. He is a regular contributor to the science section of Christianity Today and is the editor of Faith Life's Didactos uh, Journal of Theological Education. And I am delighted to uh, welcome Douglas Estes to us, to our listening audience here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, great to be here today. I confided in my listeners uh, earlier that I had uh, actually had a, a, a different guest scheduled for today, and that guest had food poisoning. And when I learned that you were available, this, this was a book I wanted to, to talk with you about. I was uh, thrilled. Uh, but I didn't have a chance to read the entire book. But I was pleasantly surprised by the approach that you've taken on this subject. It's much uh, deeper and I think more relevant than I had anticipated. So I, first of all, congratulations on the book, and I appreciate so much your stepping in today. Sure, that's great. Happy to do it. Um, you um, start out in the introduction of the book, helping to give us some perspective of uh, looking back. We tend to look forward, but looking back on the lives of our grandparents and great-grandparents and the issues that dominated their thinking and the way they viewed the world, not so much looking forward with optimism toward the future, but looking back with some trepidation based on the challenges they faced and how different life is here in the West for us today. Can you give our listeners just a little perspective on that? Sure. I think that when we talk about technology, 
it's very tempting to look at technology as it exists today with the challenges that we face today, like social media and the smartphone and, you know, how young should we let our children use an iPad at what age? Um, yet at the same time, every generation um, since the beginning has struggled with the use of technology. It happens to be coming faster today than it has been in the past, but we've always struggled with technology. Society has always created new uh, forms and tool of tools, new things that we can use and we can do. And so we're always questioning how do we use it, how do we approach this technology effectively. And we want to be able to bring it back to what God's Word says and our relationship with God so that we can understand how to use technology well. One of the things you point out that I think if we give it some thought would have to agree is that technology is moving so quickly, we can't even really anticipate what's uh, to come ahead. And this is not a book that uh, that suggests that we should not be engaged in technology, but you uh, are attempting to help us think more carefully, not only the practical aspects of the use of technology, but the philosophical questions that should accompany our understanding of its impact on the way we live and and its use and our perspective on who God is and who we are as uh, the Scripture defines us. Yes, that's exactly right. One of the challenges that we do face in our world today in the 21st century uh, is that technology is coming at us faster than it ever has been. And it almost seems like technology is on an exponential curve upward. Yet at the same time, we as Christians must engage technology. We must understand it. We must discuss it. We must figure out how to use it. And I think that the sad thing is, is that if we look back over the history of the last 100 years, Christians have been slower and slower to engage questions around technology. It doesn't mean that they haven't adopted it or used it, but we've been slow to, to really engage it in the same way that our forefathers did. You know, if you go back to uh, the printing press, the roads, all the other technological advances that came through. You know, Christians sometimes were the first to, to grab hold of these uh, and to use them, especially for the proclamation of the gospel, encouraging people uh, around their world in their communities. And yet in the last hundred years, we've been slower to do that. And I'd like to see us quicken the pace, get a sense of what these technologies are, and begin to discuss them in our churches and in our homes. One of the reasons for that is the fact that uh, technology, as it will emerge into the future, is that it's going to have much more profound impact uh, on our understanding, our, our worldview, our view of God, uh, and, and uh, its meaning than previous generations could ever have imagined. Yes, although there's a but there. And the but, I would say, is if you look at, for example, radio versus television. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very simple example here, Christians were relatively quick to embrace radio, but they were much slower to embrace television. And, I, you know, one of the things we don't want to see happen as new technologies arrive is Christians be reticent to engage because they feel that in some way these things don't don't correspond with their faith or that maybe this is, you know, a sign of the end times, or maybe this is, you know, God's plan for them. But as humanity increases until God comes back, you know, God has a plan for each of us to go into our communities, to share the gospel, to engage people. And the, the way that, one of the main ways that we're going to be able to do that is through tools, which is technology in a sense. You write that the question at the heart of this book are how do we handle rapid technological change? How do we evaluate new tech in light of what the Bible teaches and what Jesus models for us? And how do we discern the best use of technology that has not yet even arrived? How do we remain faithful to God during a technological turning point 
in history. One of the the things that you address first off is the fact that many people of faith um, are thought to be against science or technology, um, but that that's not necessarily the case. Yes, I don't find that to be true. I think that Christians sometimes get a you know get depicted in the media as being against technology or you know kind of luddite you know in their approach. Mm-hmm. But I don't really find that to be the case. I mean, most Christians use technology and use technology to the same degree that anyone else does. But I think that the challenge sometimes comes in is that we are a little bit uh, hesitant sometimes when it comes to figuring out how to approach it. Like, we don't want to talk about it. And, and it's interesting in a way because sometimes pastors or other ministry leaders or Christian leaders, they'll will be talking or they'll you know, text me or email me or something about technology. And it's interesting because we, we get sort of myopic sometimes about various technology. Instead, if you look back in Scripture, Scripture doesn't actually really seem to, to critique technology at all. Um, people use technology. You know, there's no sermon uh, by Paul, you know, to the ch- church in Corinth or somewhere about using technology or not using technology. Um, they, they used it. They, they used it in the way that they felt like could glorify God. And so for us, we want to be critically thinking about it without being myopic or without overly focusing on things that are the negative, but asking the question, how can we use these tools these wonderful tools that, you know, human societies produce, how do we use these wonderful tools to glorify God in our lives and our community? At the same time, you write that many people of faith question some of the underlying ideas that are often promoted along with scientific achievement and technological advancement. When these ideas and their objections collide, popular culture can make it appear that Christians object to the science or the technology when, in fact, it's the underlying uh, ideas connected with them. Yes, that's right. I mean, this has been a perennial problem uh, since the dawn of time where there are things in society, such as technology, there's other examples, but there's things in society where the technology is in and of itself, like it's, it's, it's it, what's it, but then comes along with it a philosophy or an idea. And the problem that comes in is a lot of times either Christians are painted as being for or against the technology when it's really the philosophy that they're for or against, or sometimes it's just assumed that you will, you know, that you will agree with the philosophy even if you don't agree with the technology. I mean, let me see if I can give an example. Yeah. One time I was in um, the supermarket and I saw a child that was about three years old have their own iPad watching movies while the mom was all the way down the aisle picking out some, some food. And I thought it was very strange that the child was completely alone with only their iPad watching their movie, total glee on their face, you know. And I just thought, the thing is, is that there's the technology. The iPad is a, is a wonderful instrument. But yet at the same time, the philosophy of our culture sometimes says, just use it with, with abandon. But the problem is, is that what we as Christians need to critique is the philosophy, which is, you know, do whatever you want, do whatever feels good. Not, and just being simple here for a second, not critique the technology itself, with every tool, with every bit of technology, there's going to be a good way to use it and a bad way to use it. And in most cases, the critique comes in the philosophy that comes along with it rather than the technology itself. In fact, uh, you point out that one of the difficulties with discussing technology lies in the divide between the practical 
and the philosophical. And your book really focuses on some of the philosophical questions that will inform our understanding and use of technology as we anticipate it in the future uh, so that it it, it uh, does not have the capacity to change our understanding and view of God, for example. Uh, we recognize the role that culture plays in introducing the technology and all of the things that are attendant to it. Yes, and I think that uh, one of the things that happens a lot is that we don't really know how to discuss technology sometimes. I like to joke, and I sort of started this joke earlier in the conversation, but I like to joke that you know sometimes ministry leaders, they'll text me or tweet me or email me. I don't really agree with you know all the uses of technology <laughs> in our culture, but it's ironic because they're doing it over text or over tweet mm-hmm. or you know over email. And, and the most important thing to me is, is that as we are figuring out how to use technology, is that there, there is still, it still needs to come back to who God is. And, and that's what I do in my book, is that as I talk about all these technologies, I talk about how the, the use of those technologies and the philosophy that comes with them can intersect and sometimes uh, damage the way people view God. And so I look at, you know, like you mentioned, I look at eight technologies. I also look at eight different um, views of the way that we understand who God is. You know, he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. You know, these kind of things that we think about as the character of God. And the character of God is the rock. It's the unchanging thing mm-hmm. about who he is. And that is what we want to base everything on. So if culture changes, um, if technology changes, God is unchanging. And so we always want to come back to that rock, even in the midst of, of rapid change. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Douglas Estes. He's a associate professor of New Testament. We're talking about his book, Braving the Future. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Douglas Estes, he's the author of Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Technology. Now, just before the break, you made the point that in the book, you look at eight key technologies that are going to shape our future. And it's pretty ominous when you think about these technologies and how they might develop. But let's talk about what these eight are, and then maybe we'll have time to look at a couple of them. Sure. Well, just as a list, uh, the ones I talk about are virtual reality, autonomous machines, gene editing, artificial intelligence, brain-computer interfaces, intelligent robots, nanotechnology, and cybernetics. And so some of those things sound kind of sci-fi, but they're the eight that I felt like were the most likely to come in the next 50, 100 years and have the biggest impact on human society. And that would make us question things about how we navigate in this world, who God is, these kind of questions that are of most importance. Yeah, and in fact, you list them in the, the order that you think they're most likely to emerge as technologies that we will um, be confronted with. Uh, you talk about the fact that there is a view that natives of the early 20th century were people 1.0, uh, but the 22nd century, everyone's going to get a full upgrade uh, to people 2.0 hardware, that there's going to be sort of an interface between who we are as people and the technology that we merge in ways that, again, sounds like sci-fi, but is very likely to be um, part of what we uh, will confront at some point in the future. How likely is it, do you think, that not just the technology is going to take us to that level, but that the philosophy around it uh, that has a direct um, implication to a Christian worldview is uh, going to dominate the culture? Oh Well, I think that in the latter half of your question, the 
the cult, the cultural issue will be huge because culture has always had a, a predominant philosophy that drives it. And so if you go back a couple hundred years ago, you have humanism, you have romanticism, you have all kinds of isms, you know, that dominate culture. And so every generation, at least as far back as we can track, has had these philosophies that are in uh, basically direct conflict or uh, at least uh, competition with Christianity. And, and so you're definitely going to have that. And so whether it be transhumanism or some ism beyond that, uh, every time the world changes and we enter into a new era or a new phase, there's going to be those. But, and this is what I would say, even though we don't know to all the degree to what that's going to look like, the thing that Christians do not need to worry about is they do not need to worry about the fact that God does not change. And so every generation has to figure out, okay, what is the ism, you know, whether it be humanism or transhumanism or whatever the ism is that's driving culture right now, bring it back to Scripture, bring it back to prayer, bring it back to who God is, um, and it is resolvable. It is solvable. Well, I appreciate your mentioning that because— uh, we need to be reminded that God is not wringing his hands, surprised at just how far we've come and the technology we're developing. And how is he going to relate to his people <laughs> under these circumstances? Um, you're right. God does not change and we can uh, we can trust him. But there, the challenge for us is to uh, view the world, ourselves and God in light of this technology in a way that is consistent with a biblical worldview that has been shared by every generation before us and into the future. That's right. And in fact, I was when you were talking, I was reminded of an article that A.W. Tozer wrote in Christianity Today about 60 years ago. And in it, he tells people that with the dawn of the space age, that they really don't have a reason to fear. And the reason why they don't have a reason to fear is because it's very popular. Remember, this was 60 years ago. It's very popular for people to pull out their microscopes, and that's the word he used, to try to examine the signs of the times. But we don't want to, that's the wrong tool. We want to use telescopes because when the prophets were looking ahead at mm. Jesus coming into our world, they didn't use microscopes to look at their day-to-day -day culture. They used a telescope to look forward to what God was going to do. Likewise, the early apostles, they knew that God had it in control. And they were using telescopes looking forward to what God was going to do through the ages and eventually wrap everything up, as Revelation talks about. And so we need to get behind that telescope mentality, not the microscope mentality. Oh, I love that analogy. Let's just look at one of these technologies that's likely to emerge before some of the others, and that's virtual reality. We're already seeing that um, to some degree, but your chapter on virtual reality and the addiction to tech, walk us through that, how um, we should, as followers of Christ, uh, understand it, approach it, and, and live with it, if you will. Well, virtual reality is probably one of the first ones that we will encounter. I think all of these eight technologies are already here to some degree. Uh -huh. It's the issue of being invented versus mass, uh, mass consumption of it. But virtual reality is one of the ones that mass consumption is, is rapidly coming. And a big part of that is that it is one of those technologies that can be escapist. Um, and so I talk about how even though we have escapist uh, opportunities with virtual reality, that we want to keep making sure that we are using this technology in a way that, you know, we can use it from time to time, but we're using it in a way ultimately that fits in with a biblical lifestyle. So mm -hmm. it's just like any other communication type technology, whether it be radio or whether it be TV or whether it be internet or virtual reality. These are all similar technologies, similar tools, similar, 
similar forms of communication that are on a are basically on a line or a curve, if you will. And so they they are more impactful in their ability to communicate, yet at the same and also frankly to be addictive. But at the same time, that they they're not that different. We turn off the radio. We turn off the TV, we turn off uh, the internet, we turn off virtual reality. Of course, someone listening may say, but it's harder. <laughs> yes, it is because it's more fat, more powerful technology. It's a more powerful form of communication. It's one thing to communicate by AM radio. It's a whole other thing to communicate uh, by virtual reality. But at the same time, when we think about the ways that we can use it constructively, and like the example I give um, in the book is that as a professor, you know, there are times when I want to try to help students visualize what it was like to live in the ancient world so they can get a sense of when, you know, when Paul is arguing these things. You know, Paul is not writing this as a scholar in a modern university setting. He's out in the open, you know, down in the Agora, and he's talking to people, and he's preaching these things, and then later, you know, he's, he's got these ideas that are, he's preached over and over again, these rhetorical ideas, and he's putting them down. Well, I could... I can say what I just said over the radio and maybe a listener or two will kind of get a visual in their mind. But if I could bring all of your audience onto a virtual reality playing field and be able to present visually what it was like for Paul to do that, well, that's way, way more powerful. The lesson is that much more meaningful. Um, and so there are, with any technology, there are going to be good and bad uses of it. And as Christians, we want to be at the forefront of using technology well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the other technologies that I think may bring with it the, the, the potential for fear is the brain-computer interface. There's a fear that uh, this kind of interface might make it uh, possible for uh, control of an individual contrary to their conscience or, or their will. Can you talk a little bit about brain-computer interfaces and what that technology might bring and how we might think about it? Yes. The brain-computer interface is a technology that encompasses a lot of sub-technologies, okay? But, but to make it simple, there's basically two aspects of it. There is, first of all, the, the communication between a human and a computer, okay? And then also a computer integrating um, back with a human, okay? So mostly what we're looking at right now is the first one, is the human integrating with the computer. And so again, it, it can seem to be a little bit scary in some ways, but all of these technologies are to a large extent on a continuum where they've already started and they're just getting better and better and better. So when you look at like the internet, uh, if you go back to the 19, early 1990s and the internet seemed like, okay, it could be cool, but like, are people really going to do much with this? I mean, I remember, you know, when having those kind of conversations. Um, and yet now the internet is quote, unquote, take it over our whole life, okay? So right now, um, and I use the example in my book, my grandparents, especially my great-grandparents, I know nothing of them. Nothing has survived to them. There, there's nothing. There, there's no interface with any type of technology. But at this point in my life, my great-grandchildren will not be able to say the same thing. They will be able to know everything about my life if, assuming my, you know, computer records, uh, you know, persevere until that time and my kids just don't throw them away, but probably they won't. And so they'll know a great deal about me. And that's because my, my life has already interfaced with the computer today. That brain computer interface that's coming, it's just going to take that to the next level, just like the nineties internet to the internet today. Instead of me having to write out a letter, dear great grandchildren, 
if you're reading this letter, I really hope that you will follow Jesus in your life, right? I have that letter, okay? And so and the difference will be is that my, my memories, all that I've done, maybe sermons, lectures that I've given, these sorts of things will be interfaced with the computer, and they will be there and visible if it works out, if the technology works out. They will be there and visible for my great-grandkids to be able to see. It will be a more powerful testimony writing it down. Yeah, I've yeah. been told that I had a great grand uh, something or other who was a minister, but I don't know. I, I have no way of knowing um, because they didn't preserve any of those records. Well, the prospects are fascinating. Once again, the book is titled Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the book and I hope you have a great evening. Good night. Thank you. You too. Great to be a part of the show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blinn, Clark Hilton, both hanging around, <laughs> sheltering in place, doing the show, well, the new way. Well, taking a look and refreshing some of the, uh, the headlines for the day, the U.S. has recorded the lowest number of coronavirus-related deaths in two weeks. That is great. That means we're flattening the curve, generally speaking. Monday marked the lowest number of coronavirus-related fatalities in the U.S. in two weeks. According to Johns Hopkins University, 1,433 people in the United States died from coronavirus on the 20th of April, adding to the overall death toll of 42,364 of our neighbors. In Los Angeles County, the news is grim. According to a new report, the coronavirus is believed to have infected at least 200,000 people by early April, which would far surpass the number of officially confirmed cases. Now we're talking about infections, not death rates, so keep that perspective. Now in the Senate, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said Tuesday that Congress has reached an agreement with the White House on every major issue of the nearly $500 billion emergency interim coronavirus relief package for small businesses, hospitals, and testing programs across the country with the coronavirus pandemic. And as I mentioned uh, earlier in the first hour of the program, they're now predicting that will have evaporated at least the small business loan portion of it in hours. Well, this development comes as the FDA has authorized the first at-home coronavirus test. In a statement released on Tuesday, the FBA, FDA rather said that it had reissued an emergency use authorization for LabCorp to COVID-19 RT-PCR test to permit testing of samples that were self-collected by patients at home using LabCorp's Pixel by LabCorp COVID-19 test home collection kit. In other words, they're developing a test that you can take at home. Meanwhile, the debate continues over whether hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment for coronavirus. Clearly it is for some. According to a new survey, 25% of physicians around the world believe healthcare workers should take the drug to prevent COVID-19 infections. And amid the coronavirus pandemic, China is upping its spy game on U.S. soil with a focus on manipulating the narrative former and current intel officials are saying. New Zealand is inching closer toward its goal of doing something its prime minister says no other country has achieved completely eliminating the coronavirus. Good luck with that, New Zealand. I hope you're successful. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, whose state has been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic, said on Fox and Friends on Tuesday that the state has flattened the curve without draconian orders like other states. This is Florida. A Georgia hospital is celebrating a 99-year-old woman who won a 17-day battle with the coronavirus and thanking her for being an inspiration. 99 years old, 17 days with the virus, a survivor. 
There's hope for all of us. A Georgia hospital celebrating 99 years. Well, Kentucky witnessed its highest daily spike in coronavirus cases on Sunday, just days after hundreds of protesters broke social distancing measures and gathered outside the state capitol building to demand the governor there, Andy Bashir, reopen the economy. Well, as I mentioned, the governors of Georgia, Tennessee, and South Carolina on Monday afternoon announced new plans to bring their state's economies closer to full force amid signs the coronavirus outbreak is slowing. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said certain businesses, including gyms and hair salons, can reopen beginning this Friday. Meanwhile, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee, he confirmed his state's stay-at-home order, previously extended to the 30th of this month, will end on that day. And South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster and said businesses previously deemed non-essential, department stores, flea markets, florists, bookstores, and music shops, could reopen their doors. Well, these businesses will open according to specific guidelines that we will provide in accordance with the state and national experts in both medicine and business, Lee said in a statement. Social distancing works, and as we open our uh, economy, it will be more important than ever that we keep social distancing as lives and livelihoods depend on it. So they're going to maintain distance while maintaining uh, open facilities and businesses. Kemp said, Governor Kemp said Monday that his state would expand COVID-19 testing and that hospitals were in a position to resume effective a rather elective surgery after securing necessary protective personal equipment. Given the favorable data enhancing testing or rather enhanced testing and approval uh, for our healthcare professionals, we will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail care artists, estheticians, I can never say that word, their respective schools and massage therapists to reopen their doors on Friday. Movie theaters in Georgia will be allowed to reopen and restaurants can resume in-person dining on the 27th, Kemp said. Bars, amusement parks and nightclubs will remain closed until further notice, according to the governor. I'm not clear on the logic, but clearly they have um, determined that you can maintain distancing in some of these settings while not in others. So he says by taking this measure a measured action. We will get Georgians back to work safely without undermining the progress we all have all made in this battle against COVID-19. Today's announcement is a small step forward and should be treated as such. Well, the announcement on Monday came as states were feeling the pressure to roll back social distancing measures and reopen an economy decimated by forced business closures and layoffs. Dozens of protests have sprouted up in front of the state capitol and governor's mansions across the country, and participants are calling for an end to tough restrictions. The president last week unveiled a plan for reopening the economy in several phases based on the severity of the outbreak in each state or region to be determined by each state and region's governor. Uh, we can begin the next foot, uh, the next uh, front of this war, which we are calling opening up America again, the president said during a White House news briefing, to preserve the health of Americans, we must preserve the health of our economy, end quote. He held a call with several governors over the weekend to discuss how to successfully reopen the states. In South Carolina, McMaster's executive order allowed stores to open at 5 p.m. Monday, but with requirements to adhere to social distancing guidelines. Beaches can reopen on Tuesday, no decision a uh, decision, rather, was made about reopening schools or keeping them closed for the rest of the school year. President Trump announced late Monday that he's going to soon sign an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the U.S. in what appeared to be a drastic escalation in his effort to fight the coronavirus pandemic and boost the economy. Well, that dec- declaration came hours after the U.S. equity markets plunged, with oil prices turning negative for the first time in history. Also on Monday, three states, as I mentioned, 
uh, revealed plans to begin reopening some businesses in their areas. In light of the attack from the invisible enemy, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great American citizens, the president said, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. Well, the precise contours of the president's planned order were not immediately clear. The White House uh, didn't uh, elaborate on the president's tweeted announcement. But Politico reported that the uh, Department of Homeland Security was still working out the details of the executive order and that an exemption for temporary guest workers, including farm workers, was under consideration. A top DHS official told the outlet that 22 million unemployed Americans and counting due to COVID-19 had prompted the president to act. Well, due to the pandemic, almost all visa processing by the State Department, including immigrant status and visas, has been suspended for weeks. Representative Gasser, a Republican out of Arizona, applauded the planned executive order and suggested a total immigration suspension should continue indefinitely. Thank you, Mr. President, he wrote. All immigration, uh, immigration into the United States should halt until every American who wants a job has one. And that, of course, goes beyond COVID-19. With oil prices sitting well, pretty deep in the red for the first time in history, shocking even the most seasoned energy veterans, the president plans to turn the financial bloodletting into opportunity for the United States. Based on the record low price of oil, it is at, the, uh, at a level that is very interesting to a lot of people. We're filling up our national petroleum reserves, strategic reserves, and we are looking to put as much as 75 million barrels into the reserve themselves that would top it out. Uh, that would be the first time in a long time it's been topped out and we'd get uh, get at it at the right price. Now, my understanding is this may be the only time it's been completely topped out. Uh, during Monday's session, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures for May delivered uh, uh, delivery cratered by 305% to $36.73 a barrel at a price below zero. Buyers would be uh, paid to take delivery as there are costs associated with transportation and storage. WTI closed at its lowest level since record-keeping began in March of 1983, according to the Dow Jones market data. The SPR was created back in 73-74 after the oil embargo, as noted by the U.S. Department of Energy. Its purpose is to act as a shield against the disruption or depletion of oil supplies in the United States. If the president plans, uh, if his plan gets approved by Congress, the SPR uh, would act as the mother load of U.S. storage purchased on the cheap. We'll ask for permission to buy it or to store it one way or the other. It will be full, the president added. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. So stay with us, please. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at what's going on around the country and around the world and touches us right here wherever we happen to be in our living room or office or backyard or wherever you are sheltering in place. Well, a professor at Harvard University is calling for a presumption ban on homeschooling because the practice infringes on the rights of children. Huh. Calling it dangerous. Uh, we have an essentially unregulated regime in the area of homeschooling. Elizabeth Bartholet of um, Wasserstein Public Interest Professor of uh, Law and faculty director of the, the law school's child advocacy program. She was speaking to the Harvard Magazine. If you look at the legal regime governing homeschooling, there are very few requirements that parents do anything, end quote. Well, Bartholet said the lack of oversight for people parenting their children leads to an increased risk of students not getting a proper education. 
That means effectively that people can homeschool who have never gone to school themselves, who don't read or write themselves, she said. Several states do not require parents to register their children with the state as homeschooled and can simply keep their kids at home, the magazine reported. Well, the article comes as millions of children across the country have had in-person classes canceled. This is a result, as we all know, of the pandemic. With nearly every state in the country implementing some sort of stay-at-home order, parents have been left to help their children with online lessons with teachers or teach their children themselves. Thus, children are missing out on participating in society, Bartholet says. And, of course, that's the only benefit that students can benefit by, she argues. From the beginning of compulsory education in this country, we have thought that the government as having some right to educate children so that they become active, productive participants in the larger society. But it's also important that children grow up exposed to community values, social values, democratic values, ideas about non-discrimination and tolerance of other people's viewpoints. And of course, that cannot be transferred through the homeschool setting, she is suggesting. Bartholet also called it dangerous to allow parents to have total control of their children and education. Now consider where this might ultimately go, as this Harvard professor suggests that you are unqualified not only to educate your children, but perhaps to parent them as well. She goes on, this issue is, uh, do we think the parents should have 24-7 essentially authoritarian control over their children from ages 0 to 18? I think that's dangerous, she said. I think it's always dangerous to put powerful people in charge of the powerless and to give the powerful ones total authority. She's referring to parents, not the government, not the education system that would like to undermine what many parents hold of some value. So this is just absolutely fascinating to me, but this is a Harvard professor who has some influence over education. Be aware. Well, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator, is uh, recovering from a cardiovascular procedure, according to a South Korean media uh, report. The Daily NK, an online news periodical based in Seoul, uh, which is run mostly by North Korean defectors, reported that Kim, who's 36, was recovering from his April 12th surgery at a resort country villa on the East Coast. The report said Kim has been in bad health because of heavy smoking, obesity, and overwork. Now, sources say that the White House is aware of the reports of Kim's health, but there is no confirmation. Well, specifics of his condition were unclear. North Korea has been notorious for withholding and distorting news inside its borders. Kim missed a key anniversary event last week. The national holiday is the anniversary of the birthday of the remote kingdom's founder, Kim Il-sung, Kim's grandfather. Well, the her- hermit kingdom's um, most important holiday is April 15th, the birthday of the country's first dictator, known as the Day of the Sun. He wasn't present. It's a day that normally includes an immense military parade and synchronized public performances, sometimes involving tens of thousands. His apparent absence raised questions about whether coronavirus has played a part. It's also interesting that uh, Kim has no children, so there are no apparent heirs. He does have a sister uh, who could uh, assume the throne, but that's not at all clear. I was in a Bible study Zoom call earlier today, and someone pointed out she has a, a Korean uh, daughter-in-law that uh, the Kim Jong-un and his sister's grandparents were Christian, And uh, what an interesting period this would be if Kim Jong-un were to succumb to his illness, whether that's COVID-19 or the cardiovascular procedure that he underwent earlier this month, his sister were to uh, take place, or if there's some sort of disruption that's ahead because there is no heir apparent. In any event, Kim Jong-un recovering, but apparently not doing well. Well, on the lighter side, if one can assume there is one, I noticed on a website I was perusing earlier today, a series of very comical signs. People 
indicating that they are, in fact, stir-crazy. One sign said it has been, and then there's a piece of paper that is replaced every day. Uh, This particular uh, little piece of paper had the number six on it. It has been six days since pants, it says. (laughs) Another said, um, uninstall 2020, it's got a virus. Another sign read, and it was uh, posted on the balcony railing outside an apartment building, my husband is for sale. (laughs) Uh, Another one, COVID-19, day 27. Common sense is like deodorant. The people who need it the most never use it. This is COVID-19, day 27. One marquee outside a a movie studio now playing. No close encounters of any kind. And another from the Lakes Home Center, Inc., on their outside uh, sign. I just finished Netflix. Apparently the whole thing. (laughs) By the way, stocks in Netflix have just skyrocketed while other things are plummeting. Apparently, people are reverting to Netflix. I'm not a subscriber, but that's where people are hanging out with all the hours they now have on their own. Taking a look at what's happening in Oregon with the latest update. This is from earlier in the day. That could change by the end of today. But COVID-19 continues to spread across Oregon and southwest Washington. It began, of course, on the uh, February the 28th. That was the first day that we had a case reported in the state of Oregon. Uh, Oregon now has had 75 deaths as of this morning, 1,940,045 40, tests. And among those 40,000 tests, 38,089 were negative. In Washington, there have been 652 deaths due to COVID-19, 12,085 cases and 141 um, tests. And among those 141 tests, 128,000 of them, nearly 129 tested negative. Across the country, 42,400 deaths, 788,920 cases And across the world, there have now been 171,810 deaths um, due to COVID-19. Well, the Oregon Health Authority has released new guidelines widening the pool of people eligible for coronavirus testing. We'll share that with you in a moment. Last week, health officials admitted that more tests could be completed with the supplies on hand. And USA Track and Field has rescheduled its Olympic trials for June the 18th through the 27th, 2021 at Hayward Field in Eugene. It's just been learned that thousands of COVID-19 tests are going unused each week in Oregon. It's a surprising turnaround from the beginning of the pandemic when the lack of testing was a constant problem. Right now, about 9,000 tests a week are being administered in Oregon. Legacy Health, Providence, and OHSU can can do rather about 8,200 additional tests. An unknown number may be available via private labs and the U of O and Oregon State as well. Governor Kate Brown and her administration are working on a plan to reopen Oregon, although a time frame has not yet been determined. A draft report provides insight on what the three-phase plan could look like. We'll share more on that in uh, just a few moments. Small business owners are frustrated by the Paycheck Protection Program loan process, which may continue to frustrate them even as Congress is adding additional dollars to that program. Oregon's new coronavirus testing guidelines, um, according to the Oregon Health Authority on Tuesday, uh, widens the pool of Oregonians who are eligible for coronavirus testing after acknowledging last week that more tests could be completed with the supplies on hand. Well, state officials stopped their practice of discouraging people with mild symptoms from seeking testing, emphasizing that it's up to a doctor or nurse to decide if testing is warranted. It's recommended that people without symptoms and those with symptoms that do not necessitate medical evaluation 
call their provider to discuss those symptoms and whether they need to be evaluated. That's a departure from the old guidance, which said in bold letters that such people were not recommended for testing at this time. And let me repeat that so that you understand uh, what the guidelines are. It's now recommended that people without symptoms and those with symptoms that do not necessitate medical evaluation call their provider to discuss symptoms and whether they need to be evaluate, uh, evaluated. In another change, the state has now blessed coronavirus tests for uh, people without symptoms in limited circumstances for um, residents, children, employees, and others in care facilities such as nursing homes, school, daycares, healthcare facilities, or in jails and prisons. Screening is um, uh, conditioned on laboratories having enough capacity and uh, ability to process those tests. And the state has also expanded the pool of people with symptoms of cough, fever, and shortness of breath who are eligible for testing. The new group includes people of color and people who provide uh, direct care, such as hospice workers, physical therapists, and also frontline workers. Now, those include people who work in grocery stores, pharmacies, delivery, food service, and transportation. Now, the other notable change we'll tell you about when we return, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned earlier in the program that Netflix, is uh, the stock has gone way up and people are turning to that more than anything else during this time of quarantine. Well, I want to recommend another source that will not only inform, but edify, challenge, and perhaps give you some direction into the future. I'm talking about the documentary No Safe Spaces. It was one of 2019's top-earning political documentaries that focuses on free speech. And this notion of tolerance that's, um, well, being blocked by intolerant forces, primarily on college campuses, but elsewhere as well, who say they believe in free speech except when it comes to someone with whom they disagree. Well, I want to encourage you to check it out. No Safe Spaces is a documentary that, from my perspective, is a must-see. I've seen it, and I'm going to see it again. I plan on purchasing it because I think it's worth sharing with others. But right now, Salem Media Group is making it available. And this is the first time that Salem has jumped into the movie business. They're streaming No Safe Spaces. Uh, and it's available for you for a limited time. You can go to nosafespaces.com and for nineteen ninety five you can check it out. But I should mention for KPDQ listeners, you can use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. Now that's significant. Again, nosafespaces.com for nineteen ninety five. Everybody else can see it, but for KPDQ listeners, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. No safe spaces. It not only gives you a glimpse into what's happening now, but a glimpse into what could happen in the future if we allow what's happening on college campuses to continue unchallenged. NoSafeSpaces.com, discount code SAVE25. Well, earlier we were talking about the uh, new coronavirus testing guidelines for the state of Oregon, and I wanted to continue with that. The other notable change in the testing here uh, at the Oregon State Public Health Lab, which is run by the Health Authority, is the state now says it's going to analyze tests at its labs for people with symptoms at care facilities and might consider testing people without symptoms. That's a big shift. Uh, state officials originally said that they would use their lab to run tests for people in care facilities, then reverse course and said they would only provide minimal testing assistance because um, they were too busy. Well, thankfully, they're less busy there are more tests available than they are giving tests. So this is 
an explanation, at least in part, for the new normal. The pendulum has swung back toward full testing for the by the state lab, and the change is happening at, uh, as officials around the state have few tests uh, to process, with most hospitalized patients now having test results analyzed by in-house hospital labs. So this is uh, very good news. Now, testing by doctors and private labs are recommended by the state as, uh, as follows. Healthcare workers and first responders, people with fever, cough, shortness of breath, residents, staff, children, or other people in care facilities or group living settings. When clinical laboratories have sufficient testing capacity, people in these settings without symptoms can be considered for testing, and we seem to be moving in that direction. Workers who provide direct care or service in multiple group facilities or who provide in-home service, hospice care, uh, physical or occupational therapy, in-home personal care workers, and so on. Essential frontline service workers who have regular contact with large numbers of people, and that includes those who work in grocery stores and pharmacies, food service, transportation, patients 60 years and older, patients with underlying medical conditions, uh, including but not limited to hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, immunocompromising uh, conditions, people who identify as black, African-American, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Hispanic, American Indian, Alaskan Native, or as having a disability. Rather interesting to me to put those two categories as if they were the same, as if being African American is a disability, but I'll move on. Pregnant women, patients with worsening symptoms, patients who have contact with a suspect or lab-confirmed COVID-19 patient within 14 days. Uh, so these are the new rules that you'll find with or- Oregon's testing guidelines. And if you didn't quite catch that, you can... Uh, Find that online, Oregon's new testing guidelines, and that is as of this week. So that's good news for those who are concerned about or may be exposed to those with COVID-19 or in large groups of people. Also, Oregon's uh, antibody studies plans to answer some big questions about COVID-19. These, um, when the first case, I should say, of community-acquired coronavirus was discovered in Oregon, infectious disease labs all across the state started developing tests to identify people sick with the virus. When it became clear that only a limited number of tests would be provided by the federal government, the need became even more urgent. And while they were working on testing, a team of uh, uh, genomics lab at Providence Health Center, uh, healthcare services in Oregon, also started developing one that could identify people who had gotten sick and then recovered, an antibody test, also called a serology test. Uh, Dr. Um, let's see, it's Bifolco, a pathologist and the medical director at Providence's genomics lab, says that they knew they'd need uh, one eventually. We don't know how many people have been infected with coronavirus, and that number is very important for public health reasons. Well, antibody testing can answer public health researchers' questions about the new coronavirus, the novel virus, as it's called. It can help estimate how many people in the population have been affected, and it can help figure out how many cases were asymptomatic or went undiagnosed. Getting a good estimate of that total number of COVID-19 cases is vital for epidemiologists and disease modelers, as they're called, who are trying to figure out how many total cases uh, different areas might see and how much they need to prepare. It can also be important for healthcare workers who may have been infected and would like to know if they uh, might be immune and beyond the healthcare system. It could allow people who get tested to know if they have immunity and could return to work or school. But before we, um, they hand out immunity passports, which is a concept that's being developed, uh, there's more that needs to be known. So that is a, a process that's being developed and undertaken right here in the state of Oregon.
Also, I should mention that Governor Kate Brown's office privately disclosed new details on Monday about Oregon, how Oregon, rather, could be, begin reopening amid the coronavirus pandemic, including potential requirements that county officials submit a formal request to the governor and certify that they have enough personal protective equipment for local first responders. Uh, the reopening Oregon framework remains in draft form. It's subject to revision. State officials hope to finalize it during the week of May the 4th, including specific guidelines for various businesses and geographic regions as part of a three-phase plan. So that gives you some perspective on how things are moving in the state of Oregon. Again, they hope to finalize this plan during the week of May the 4th, which is, uh, what is that, next week or the week after, including specific guidelines for various businesses, geographic reasons, and parts of this three-phase plan in the state of Oregon. Yesterday, I mentioned that the $600 in addition to the regular unemployment uh, benefits has raised real concerns about whether or not it's profitable to return to work and that there are people taking advantage of uh, the fact that staying on unemployment is more prosperous than going back to work. And I guess it goes back to one's character um, and what's uh, what's important. But restaurants represent less than 9% of Paycheck Protection Loan recipients. But as of March, um, uh, accounted for the majority of layoffs nationwide. Now, restaurants say that their industry needs its own targeted recovery fund because the bailout package Congress passed last month is making it more attractive for their staff to draw unemployment benefits than to continue working. Well, the new Paycheck Protection Program waives repayment of small business loans if the borrower uses 75% of the money to maintain payroll. It's a measure that's intended to reduce layoffs. But with the expanded unemployment benefits included in the stimulus bill, some workers can, well, um, as much as double their weekly salary, their weekly check, if they stay unemployed. That's not a scenario it's designed to uh, create. Well, the mismatch is particularly acute for restaurants, cafes, and small shops, non-essential businesses where pay scales tend to be low that have been put into indefinite hibernation. The National Restaurant Association told Congress on Monday that more than 60% of restaurant owners believe existing assistance programs, including PPP, are insufficient to keep employees on payroll and ask for $240 billion in aid targeted to their industry specifically. Restaurants, as I mentioned, represent less than 9% of the Paycheck Protection Loan recipients. But as of March, 90% of the, um, the majority of the layoffs nationwide. Um, I'll leave it at that, but just another example of the challenges being faced by leaders in trying to construct a response to keep people's head above water during the interim period uh, when the quarantine began and when it will eventually be lifted, whether that's all at once or gradually, which is more uh, likely the case, gradually. Meanwhile, Missouri became the first state to file a lawsuit against the People's Republic of China on Tuesday, accusing the country of being responsible for the severity of the coronavirus pandemic and seeking damages to make up for the erroneous uh, loss of life, the enormous loss, human suffering and economic turmoil resulting from the disease. Now, the, the problem isn't that it originated in China. It was the cover up that made it much worse. That's the, the, the issue. It was the cover-up. The fact that it originated there, it's going to originate somewhere, but the fact that the information necessary to address it quickly and well was not uh, made available and how the World Health Organization was part of that is what this lawsuit is about. In the Eastern District of Missouri, it follows at least seven federal class action suits that have been filed by private groups 
with one filed in Florida saying that China knew COVID-19 was dangerous and capable of causing pandemic, yet slowly acted, proverbially putting its head in the sand and or covering it up in their own economic self-interest. So it also comes on the heels of 22 Republican lawmakers who on Monday requested the Trump administration bring a case against China to the International Court of Justice for the country's actions during the pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to quick take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I think uh, for most of us, many of us, maybe all of us, we've been enjoying church services from the comfort of our own home, whether or not we would <laughs> prefer to be elsewhere, in the pews, in the chair, somewhere in the congregation, where we can look across one way and back the other way and see people that we love and worship with. Uh, but we're doing digital church these days. And I thought that was a rather interesting piece in Christianity today. It was written by a, a gentleman who writes about the dangers of digital church. Now, you might think, why on earth would you write an article on this subject now? Because that's all we're left with. But I think he's making the point that we don't want to get too comfortable with this notion that we can just do church on our own, uh, listen in, eavesdrop, if you will, become voyeurs and not participants uh, in place of what God intended, and that is for us to ultimately and finally what we uh, look forward to doing when this is over. He writes, Amber and I, referring to his wife, attend a smaller church that eschews all manner of flashy technology. That's one reason we like it there. When the coronavirus struck back in March, it took a couple of weeks before the folks in charge had gotten the hang of live streaming Sunday services. On the other end of the spectrum are the tech-savvy churches that hit the ground running almost as if they'd been rehearsing for this very moment. Silicon Valley pastor J.Y. Kim uh, would be the first to admit that broadcasting church online is a perfectly defensible stopgap measure in the midst of a pandemic condition. He expressed as much in this article for the Gospel Coalition. In the long run, however, Kim hopes churches will adopt a more skeptical posture toward the allurements of digital technology, an argument he unpacks at length in Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, places, and things in the digital age. Now, a sample of that, courtesy of Christianity Today, writer uh, John Thomas says this, one of Kim's most critical arguments addresses how many evangelical churches in their red-hot pursuit of relevance have turned to celebrity pastors and rock concert styles of worship replete with fog machines and strobe lights. To illustrate the folly of such an approach, Kim tells the story of Jake, an electronic dance music artist who, upon attending a church that used a smoke machine and laser lights, admitted, I didn't feel like I was cool enough to be there. I don't think church should be like that. According to Kim, young people like, well, Jake, are unimpressed, even repulsed, by the church's quest for relevance. What's more, this quest has come at a cost of something far more important, transcendence. What millennials and Gen Xers or Gen Zers um, like uh, Jake crave in the digital age, what all of us crave really are authentic communities that prioritize transformed lives over splashy techniques for transmitting information and manufacturing experiences. Essentially, what people want and need in uh, to invoke the uh, title of Kim's book are Analog Churches. And again, the book is titled Analog Church. Later in the book, Kim shares his own impressions from the preaching at a multi-site church. As he was uh, about to assume the pulpit, the service coordinator reminded him, Jay, don't forget to look directly into the camera at the back of the room so the campuses feel connected to you. Well, he explains in his book that even as he tried following this recommendation, he felt shaken. He began wondering whether there was a better way to herald God's word. 
Here, Kim makes an important distinction between digital forms of communication, like video sermons, and analog forms of communication that rely on face-to-face embodied interaction. While the digital can inform, only the analog can transform. By relying on video sermons, Kim argues, too many churches are missing out on the opportunity for preachers to embed themselves in real time and in real space with real people. Now, at this point, we don't have a choice about how we congregate together, and I'm so grateful for the technology that makes it possible for us to come together as the body of Christ to worship together from our remote locations. But in future, I think the warning here is not to get too comfortable with the idea that I can do church in my pajamas in my living room with a cup of hot coffee, never having to rub shoulders with anybody who is a part of said congregation. Now, this weekend, I spent some time um, in church with several different locations. I was at Southwest Bible. I was at Mount Olivet. I like to go to Tigard Covenant. So I'm going. I'm attending a lot of different churches. But and while I enjoy the worship, I've enjoyed the the teaching. It's not the same as being in close proximity. And the warning here is that when this has come to an end, his warning is much broader than that. But I guess my warning is when this comes to an end, not to settle for less than what God intended, and that is for us to be in close proximity to one another, iron sharpening iron, encouraging and lifting one another up, hearing others' voices lifted in worship in, uh, whenever possible. And I know it's not possible for everyone to attend a physical uh, church, but when it's possible uh, to do just that. So I appreciated that. Again, the title of the book is Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. And the author is J.Y. Kim who is a, a teaching pastor and has been at, uh, teaching to multiple locations, which has got to be something of a challenge, but increasingly common among pastors these days. Well, yesterday afternoon, I got a call from my niece. She's an extraordinary young woman. She and her husband have two kids. He's currently attending uh, school, but she and the two kids were free. They're my grandnieces. They're uh, six and four And she wanted to come and do a drive-by. So my mother and I, we sat out on the backyard um, on the patio. They sat some distance from us with their masks on, and we had a little uh, time together. So we could have some FaceTime, and we call them drive-bys because you don't, it's not the same as having a visit. But what a wonderful was for them to just come, and especially for my mom. Uh, for them to come to have the opportunity to see her face to face when that's possible. It's always a blessing and just to enjoy that, uh, that fellowship. And I just wanted to close today reminding all of us to remember those uh, who are in isolation, those who are uh, elderly, infirmed, who are sick, uh, write a letter, make a visit. I saw a picture of a man who was celebrating his, I think it was 63rd wedding anniversary with his wife. He was seated outside of the nursing facility. She was seated inside the nursing facility. There was a pane of glass between them. Uh, The table was decorated with a beautiful linen, a candle, and they were sharing dinner together. He on the outside, her on the inside, but they were sharing that experience together, celebrating their 63rd wedding anniversary. Um, When my uh, niece brought her, my mother's grandniece and nephew over, it was such an amazing blessing to her to see their faces. We get calls on occasion. She'll get something in the mail. We'll get pictures on the phone. Remember those who are more isolated than perhaps you and I are and remind them that they matter and that you care. Well, I want to thank James Blind for um, 
What are you doing here, James? You're um, producing today's program. You're doing some engineering. You're doing a lot (laughs) to make this happen. Same with Clark Hilton, who's engineering and doing a lot of technical stuff to make this program possible from our remote location. So thanks, guys. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, among our guests, we're going to talk with Dennis Prager. He is uh, one of the chief uh, producers of No Safe Spaces and is prominently featured throughout. So I hope you'll join us. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.